Yesterday I, was, I walked into the kitchen in my house and uh, some one of the kids asked, uh, to be unnamed at this point, said, uh, so what are you preaching on tomorrow, Dad? And I told them that I was preaching on learning to listen to God at church. And, and I got two really important tips that I hadn't put in the message, so I wanted to give them right at the start. He said, number one, don't fall asleep. Number two, stay awake. I really think we could even get simpler and just say stay awake or maybe even go to bed on Saturday night. But now that that decision has been made, you're kind of at the place where you are this morning. And I hope that we can talk this morning about what it really means to listen to God. Because really we have a question that we have to address personally here every morning as we gather to hear the word of God. And that is, are we tuning in or are we tuning out of God's voice. So I know we've just prayed. I want us to pray again and ask that God would actually speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're really grateful that as we gather this morning, we are actually able by your spirit to hear your word. Speak to us, we pray, and help us to listen. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. So this morning, to get us started, I'd like to actually take you on a journey to an imaginary world. And uh, tell you a little bit about this world as you would perceive it through your senses. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are actually standing in a raspberry field. Some of you have done that. You're standing in a raspberry field and it's sun up. The sun is just rising over the eastern mountains and its golden rays are warming the vines. And you can smell the dew and maybe even as the sun is getting a little more intense, you can smell the berries and the sweetness. In this imaginary world, there's a real God who, who created all that you see and that you can smell. And he gave you the ability to smell it. Now I want to take you to another place in this imaginary world. You're at a rocky beach. Really, you're at the place where the land meets the sea. And now you're there at sundown. And the sun is beginning to sink into the sea, but it's not just melting like an ice cube into a glass of lemonade on a warm day. It's exploding in a myriad of colors, purple and fuchsia and orange, painting the sky in spectacular displays of some higher power's idea of beauty. And now you're at another place. You're standing outside in a country garden, and the rain has been drumming all night long. We know something about that. But now the rain has stopped and it's still and quiet except for one sound. It's the sound of a solitary songbird just breaking forth in a few notes of praise to its maker. There's a God who made that bird and who made you with the capacity to actually hear it in this imaginary world. And now I want to take you to a place where you're actually on a hike. You're trekking up a mountain trail. And you've gone through forests, beautiful, rich, verdant, evergreen forests. And you've crossed crystal clear streams of water. You've gotten up to your ankles, maybe up to your knees in that cold, clear water. And now you've entered a glade where you're surrounded by bushes with small, glossy leaves. And on these bushes, lo and behold, they're crowned with little, round dark berries, and you pick one, and you pop it in your mouth, and you taste the magical taste of mountain huckleberries, and you pick a few more, and a few more until your hands and your mouth are stained with purple, and you realize there's a 
God in this imaginary world who made those berries and who made you the capacity to actually taste their indescribable flavor. And now I want to take you one more place. It's all still in this imaginary world. I want to take you to a softly lit room. And you're kneeling in this room in the middle of the night. There's almost no sound. Just the tiniest of noises are audible and breaking the happy silence. It's a solemn place and a solemn time. It's a sanctuary of joy, though, because there in the center of that dimly lit room is your wife and a newborn baby. You stretch out your hand. No, a hand is much too big. You stretch out your finger to touch the velvet baby skin of your own flesh and blood. To touch the downy hair. To revel in a story that has been told a billion times before, but never quite like this. And you realize in this imaginary world that there's some kind of a God that made babies so soft and their hair so downy and gave you fingertips sensitive enough to actually appreciate it. So what do you think about the imaginary world? Well, it's a lot like it, but I want to tell you it's an imaginary world, and there's a reason. I can hear someone maybe even saying, well, that's pretty good, but you left out half the story. And kind of I did, right? So I want you to go to another place with me in this imaginary world. Here in this imaginary world, you're now at the dump. Yeah, right? You're at the dump, and what greets your nose now? But the smell of decay, the reminder of death. And now I take you beyond the dump, to the emergency room. And the man across from you is rocking in pain. That happens in this imaginary world I'm describing to you. And now you're standing at the grave of a friend. And to your ears come the groans of sorrow from the family whose entire life just caved in. It's true in this imaginary world that I'm describing to you. And now, I take you to the place where you have this taste in your mouth. It's a strange and bad metallic taste of chemotherapy for a cancer whose attempted cure makes you wonder in your lowest moments if maybe the disease was better. What do you think of this world now? Does it sound like the world you live in? A little more like it, right? But I want to tell you that this is still an imaginary world. And it's an imaginary world for one very, very important reason. We have in this imaginary world the ability to perceive 
something of a God or a higher power by our senses. We can see, we can hear, we can smell, we can touch, we can taste, and recognize that there must be something beyond, but we really don't know what in the imaginary world. But guess what? You don't live in an imaginary world. You live in the real world, the real world where we actually have a God who does not leave us to our five senses to discover who he really is. It's true that we do have an understanding of God that is given to us by our senses. In fact, it's in Romans chapter 1 that we have described to us the two main categories of the things that we can know about God from the things that we perceive. You remember what Paul says there at the opening part of Romans chapter 1. He says, for it's plain, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And how has he shown it to them? He's shown it through their senses, the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since this, oh, the creation of the world in the things that he has made. This world that I've painted for you, this imaginary world, is limited to these two forms of revelation. This one form of revelation, really, which manifests itself in two different categories of understanding of God. We see what God has made. We hear what he has done. We can taste his goodness, and we can also taste the bad things in life. We can experience all these things through our senses, but in the imaginary world that I've painted for you, God never speaks. He's utterly silent. There is no word from God. Now, how would you feel about living in the imaginary world that I've described for you? It's not a good world. And it's not a good world not because the God, in one sense, is different in his character or different in his attributes, but because at the essence of our God, we have a God who is self-revealing, who proclaims himself to us in words. And so the imaginary world, we can be grateful, does not exist. We live in the real world where God himself shows us who he is through his world. He's established rules by which people can live and be happy, and he explains to us in his word what those rules are. He reveals far more to us than we can know simply by our senses. So in the imaginary world, we would know only enough about God to know that we must seek him. But we really do not know enough about him to find him, to experience him, to fellowship with him. We wouldn't know enough to trust him, especially when we see the bad things like death and decay or when we hear the cries of deep, Grief. We do not know him well enough to believe in the imaginary world that he has answers for our biggest problems or the apparent paradoxes of good and evil, of love and hate, of life and death. In this imaginary world, it's a little bit like being in the nosebleed section of a great stadium and we're watching an Olympic athlete run down the track and win the greatest race of all time. We can see him, we know that he's great. But really, we don't know him. 
we only know that he's fast. God has not left us in such a place. So last year at this time, my family and I traveled down to this beach, a beach outside Ozette Lake, and um, on the coast of the outer, the outer coast of the state of Washington on the peninsula. And uh, we made our way down a very well-established trail. In fact, a lot of it was, was actually on planks, and so you couldn't hardly miss the trail, right? I mean, it's like, how dumb do you have to be to miss the trail? And we didn't. We actually made it. We got all the way down to the beach, and we enjoyed exploring the sea stacks and so forth that were out there on this amazing exposed area of the Pacific Ocean where the land and sea meet. And then we decided it was probably time to head back. Well, the trail, they say, is up the beach. But no one knows exactly how far. So we could have turned around and gone just back the way we came, but of course, we wanted to go back by a different way. And so we thought, we'll just track up the beach. How hard can it be to find a trail when you're just going down a beach? But it was harder than we thought. Not only that, we were looking for petroglyphs, because out there they have some of these petroglyphs on the rocks, and they are really real because we eventually did find them, but not because we, were t we discovered them on our own. They're faint and difficult to see. You know how we found it? Someone told us. Yeah, that's right. Because a silent, in this case, in the, in the real world, a silent God is really a sentence of death. It's a sentence to being lost without hope. It's a sentence to never finding your way. The only way we know our, the path to God is because he tells us. We can know that he exists. We can know that he's great. We can know that he's powerful. We might even be able to discern certain things about his character, that he, that he loves beauty and that he's uh, rich in in, a, in creative power, but we don't know him unless he tells us who he really is. So in, in the scriptures, we're told exactly how this goes in Romans chapter 10, and it says this, it gives this little play of ideas, and I want you to follow with me. In fact, you can turn there if you'd like. Romans chapter 10, it's not where we're going to camp this morning, but as we move our way toward where we're going through several different passages. Romans chapter 10 and verse 11, it says this. The scripture says everyone who believes in him, that's believes in God, will not be put to shame. So here's the great thing we don't want to have happen. We do not want to be put to shame. This is what every person in all of humanity needs to know, that they can stand before the God who is real, in a real world, and not be put to shame that they can actually know we can stand before God and experience his approval, his blessing, his favor at the end of our days when we are before him. This is the great question. This is the one thing we have to know above all other things. Can we stand before God and not be ashamed? Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, now get it, Everyone who calls on him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who's saved? It's a pretty simple answer. Paul tells us right here. Who is saved? Everyone who calls on him. Now Paul goes on and he says, great, so you got it. All who call on him are saved. So who calls? So it says in verse 14, how are they to call on him 
in whom they have not believed. So who calls? Those who believe. Who is saved? Those who call. You're catching the logic Paul is laying out. It's pretty simple, right? But Paul says that's not the end of the story. And he says only those who hear believe. Now follow it back. Only those who hear believe. Only those who believe call. Only those who call what? Are saved. So the, the, transgre- the, uh, the connection across is continuous. Only those who hear believe. So as we gather at church this morning, we're here for a very important purpose that connects all the way back to the very idea of being saved by God. Only those who hear believe. And Paul goes on to actually explain, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, preaching, as we'll find out in a few moments, is in one sense not the world's most elegant art. I mean, there are people who have made it more elegant than others, and there are people who have who are really quite uh, eloquent at doing it. But the idea of preaching itself is not about the eloquence of the preacher, but about the power of the message preached. So a silent God is a sentence of death because we never can be saved unless we hear the message. But a speaking, revealing God, a self-revealing God, is really the path of life. In John chapter 1, that I didn't expect Lyle to read a few minutes ago, we won't read it again since he already did, we're told very clearly, in the beginning was the Word, interesting, the Word. And the Word, Jesus himself, was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Nothing was made without him. And he goes on to say that the word himself is life. The word is life. And the life is the light of men. The fact that we have a God who speaks is in itself life. We have life because our God speaks to us. The word became flesh. John goes on in that same chapter in verse 14 to say, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God, by his word, came and made. He spoke the world into existence. In fact, it's interesting that the very first thing we're told about God, or one of the very first things in Genesis chapter 1, is that God Well, he made, right? But how did he make? He spoke. He spoke life into existence. And he's still speaking. He's still making. And he's still remaking us, redeeming his world. God actually calls to life today by his voice. In fact, you'll remember that in John chapter 11, the big story of Lazarus who died. And you'll remember that The disciples said, Lord, if we had been here, he wouldn't have had to die. What what are we doing? And, And he traces, John traces the chronology of Jesus waiting to come and finally arriving at the tomb of Lazarus. 
the weeping, the mourning, death, just like in the imaginary world I described, is real in the real world. And the sorrow that accompanies it is real too. And so Jesus stands at the tomb and Jesus himself weeps. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he says. In that context of death and sorrow, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he does something about it and he prays. This is what he prays here in John chapter 11. He prays that this to the Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out, he spoke, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? He came to life. The word of God is both the means of conveying his life and the life itself. So here we have the word himself standing in a tomb. Jesus, the word, standing and calling to life that one who is dead. The word of God is both the life and the means of conveying that life to his people. So this presses us to ask when we gather on a Sunday morning exactly what we're doing here. As we gather, we are here to to listen to the very words of God. Now, I wonder, as I speak to you and as I come, this has been convicting to me personally, if I'm really coming expecting to hear words of life or not. I talk, I'm an, I'm an HR guy, part-time, and I talk to guys about using their sick time. And uh, so we, we like to say, of course, and it's state law now, and we don't need to discuss all the things that have to do with state law and sick time, but uh, it is state law. You must allow people to use their sick time for a whole variety of different reasons. But I like to challenge them to say, wait a minute now. Okay, so we give you your sick time. If you claim that you have a reason that, is, that you're eligible to use this, that sick time, but if you were going to Disneyland with your family and you had a plane to catch at SeaTac, would the sniffles stop you from getting there? but I wonder if I come to church with the same idea. It's like, you know what? I've had a busy week. I'm not sure what this preacher is going to say anyway that's going to have any impact on me or is going to tell me anything different than what I already knew. So I kind of, oh, that's what Jacob and Joshua are doing in this picture. They've got, that's what I do some of the time. I come to church with my earmuffs on. I'm not really expecting to hear anything. And if, if God does decide to break through, it's going to take some work. Someone's going to have to pull the earmuffs off and get me to actually listen because I'm buried in my own world not listening. Oh, I come. I come because it's the right thing to do. I come because I've always done it. I come, you fill in the blank. Why do you come? But do we actually come to hear God? Well, I'm not coming to hear God. I'm hearing this guy preach up here, and he's not naive. He makes mistakes. He repeats himself. He does funny things. He has funny mannerisms. And I've heard him tell that story before. Right? You've been there. You might be there this morning. Don't say that if you are. 
Do we actually want to hear the voice of God? Listen. What we've just heard explained as the boys read the scripture and as we've walked through the little bit that we've walked through this morning. Here, let me, let me say this. If you came believing that there was, that I was going to give you a treasure map that would lead you to the sunken bounty of a Spanish galleon. And I gave you more details than you thought you needed to know. And it took a little longer. Would you be trying to get out the door? If, it were, if we really thought we were going to hear God, if I came here thinking that Jesus had something to say to me, would I listen up? Are we tuning in? Or are we tuning out? The reason that I've led you to this point is to actually tell you that we want to hear the word of God. This whole point, to this, to this point in our sermon this morning, is simply to say we really want to hear him. Don't you want to hear him? He's the only way that you'll ever experience life. There is no other life-giving power. And his word preached, his word preached, is the difference between the imaginary world, which can only result in death because there is no word that specifically shows us the trail and the real world where we have the word of God. So are we tuning in or are we tuning out? I want to give you a few practical ways to do that. Tell you a few important things about what we want to do as we come. And the way to do that sometimes is by negation. So I'm going to give you a few things we do not come to do as we gather on Sunday mornings for hearing God. The first thing is we don't come for entertainment. If you're looking for entertainment, may I suggest, politely suggest, that you will find much better entertainment somewhere else. So you probably ought to just get up and leave because you're going to be bored stiff if you're purely looking for entertainment. Look, we're going to do our very best job to preach the word of God to you, but it's not for entertainment. And it's not just, get this, it's not just for information. Well, I was looking for the preacher to tell me something I didn't know before. Don't tell me you've said that. I know. How many times have I said it, right? I'm just looking to hear something I haven't heard 40 times before. May I suggest that if you run into that person who tells you something that you've never heard before, if you've been a long time in church, you have reason to ask questions about the validity of what's being said. Because guess what? We don't preach a new message. We preach the same old message in new ways every single Sunday. Because our message is the message of the cross. It's the power of the cross to transform life. And that life is given to you through the word of God. It's the word of the cross. That's what the guys read in the scripture reading this morning. The word of the cross which transforms. It's his power, that word of the cross. If we ever preach anything else to you, Please also leave. So we're not here just for information, not just for new things that have never been heard before. And get this, you're not even here primarily just for insight. Now, I love insight. I love new ideas and ways of looking at things, kind of new twists on, on old truth that kind of make me think. But one of the things that we have to watch out for at this point in time is that if we're looking just for insight, we're likely to miss God himself. Really. We really are. 
And, and one of the things we look for is that corner on the truth, right? It's like, oh, there's somebody who's got something new to say that's kind of a corner on the truth. It's some new way of looking at things. Okay, it's an old truth. I'll buy that. But it's some twist on things that's special and makes it really unique. Look, that's great if you can run into insight along the way. But that's not the end story, the end game. Is it the word of the cross? So we come to hear when we gather on these Sunday mornings to hear the word of God. It is as if Jesus himself stood and spoke to you his words. The word speaking his word through his word. Are we interested in listening? So the question that this addresses is what does God actually say? Now may I tell you that this is really important because there are a lot of confusions out there. Many, many difficulties that arise when we don't know what God actually said. In fact, if you want to trace it back all the way to Genesis, you find out that it took place at the very beginning, didn't it? In fact, it was Satan's first temptation to Eve. He tested her on what God actually said, right? Did God actually say? Those were the words that the serpent used for Eve. So it's important that you know what God actually says. These things address that for us. Let me give you a few really practical ways. These are in your notes. We're going to blitz past them, so they're already pre-printed for you. If you want to use them, you may. If you don't, don't mind. It's just for your reference. But here are a few practical ways that you can prepare to hear the word of God when you come on a Sunday morning. Ask yourself this question. What's the meaning or thrust of this passage? Some of the greatest errors occur by isolating truth from other truth. Decontextualizing truth. Not actually understanding what a passage says. You can do that. That's your job. You have a job when you come to sit in the pew, and your job is to hear what God is actually saying on the broadest, on the broadest context. What is the idea of the Bible? What's the idea of this book? What's the idea of this passage that the boys read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2? What's the idea of the book of 1 Corinthians? You can know that. You can look and say, am I accurate as I preach it to you? Here's another thing you can ask. What was God saying to the people who first received his word? Cultures are different. Times change. So when Paul addresses head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what was really going on? When he talks about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talk to me about it. That's going to be important. You're going to want to know the answer to that when we get to that section of scripture. You can know that. You can ask the big questions that address that. Into what context did God speak this truth? What was the time frame? What were, what were the people groups that were being addressed? Was this specifically something that was being addressed to the people uh, in time to come? Or did it have really specific application? Take the Messianic Psalms if you want an interesting study of that. There are double fulfillments going on, right? There are things that it meant to the people in the day in which it was spoken by the Holy Spirit. And there are things that it means yet to us and it meant to them as well. As they look at Psalm 2, for example, which clearly tells us of the Lord Jesus. So into what context did God speak this truth? Now here's one that gets kind of pokey and tricky. How can I put this truth into my own words? If I were to paraphrase it, how would I do it? Romans chapter 6 is an interesting place to go for that. What shall we say then? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul says? You remember it. You've studied it. Some of you have memorized it. Really important way to deal with sin, right? What shall I say then? Shall I continue in sin that grace... Hey, stop. Let's paraphrase that. Can we think about how that would actually sound if you paraphrased it? Anyone want to give a, give a guess at it? Give a try? Let me help you. 
Here it is. One way. What should Rob say? When I'm tempted with lust. Should I just continue to lust? Because God is going to keep lavishing his grace on me anyway? Try it with whatever your sin is. What should I say? Should I keep being greedy and selfish? And you name how. Talk about how. God hears it. He knows it anyway. Paraphrase it. Put that in. You talk about how to get the word of God in. When you come sit here on Sunday morning, you do this, we are going to be a different church. You paraphrase it. Put it into action. Make it your own. Something's going to change. Here's one more. Do I agree? Now, this gets... This gets touchy. I didn't ask Pastor Kyle about this before I did it. Do I agree with the preacher's interpretation and application? Why or why not? But you know, this is probably one of the best things you can do. I had a speaker that I knew fairly well at one point in time, years ago, who said every time she heard another speaker make a grammatical error, she corrected it in her own mind. Now, I'm not saying that you just need to be critical, but you know what that does? It forces you to always think truth. What really is true? And if it's not true, make it clear, at least in your own mind. I remember as a boy sitting in the pews of Sierra Baptist Church in Newcastle, California, and um, I would hear our pastor, and I'm not sure that he necessarily was saying when I was feeling all wrought up about things, anything that was untrue, but something that I felt was unclear. And I wanted to jump up and say, let me tell you what he actually means. You know what that did for me? That fired me to know and understand and speak the truth. You do that when I'm preaching. You do that when Pastor Kyle's preaching or when we have a missionary in or some other speaker is speaking. Please do that because you will come away with a belief and understanding of the truth itself. These are some practical ways. There's more, but that's what we're going to look at. What does God actually say? Ask that question. Do you really want to hear the word of God? We come to hear the word of God and what it actually says, but we do more than that. We do more than that. We come to hear the word of God to us. We come to hear what God wants to say to me. What does God want to say to me? May I suggest that you can actually pray that way? That you can actually ask what God wants to say to you? You can pray it like this. Holy Spirit, please preach your own words to me this morning. Confront my sin with your holiness. Enlighten my darkness and bring hidden faults into the open where I can confess and forsake me. Brave enough to pray that? Show me your path and give me direction. Comfort, my, comfort me in my losses and in my daily distresses. Feed me with the bread of heaven and lift up Jesus, the very word of God, through the word that's preached this morning. Do you believe he can do that through the preached word? Let's ask him to do it. He can. He can. His Holy Spirit wants to take the word of God and make it come alive as you ask him. Come speak to me. There's a lot more we could put into a prayer. Maybe you just come and say, Holy Spirit, I just need you to hug me this morning. You ever been there? I just need you to hold me close. Can God do that through the preached word? The answer is yes, but wait a minute. He's preaching on head coverings this morning. How is that going to... Ask the Holy Spirit. He can. He can. 
we're going to be launching into a series of, of exegetical studies coming up in our church. And you might say as some of these studies, I don't get how that has any bearing on my life. Well, listen, we're going to do our very best. I know Pastor Kyle will do his very best to be able to make it applicable as possible. But there's a better applier. I'm not saying Pastor Kyle is not good at it. I'm saying there's a better applier. Because the Holy Spirit wants to take the truth of the word wherever it's found. We're back in the book of Judges. What are we going to do with the book of Judges? Or try Leviticus. Yeah. God can make Leviticus come alive to you by his Holy Spirit. Ask him to do that. So what does God want to say to me? You know how often I don't ask that question when I come to church? I'm not really, I'm not that interested. But wait, maybe he's got the treasure of a hidden uh, a Spanish galleon that's been sunk for 300 years that he wants to tell me about. But I wasn't even really interested in knowing. What does God want to say to me? And then, how does God want to speak life to me? In John chapter 17, we're told the definition of eternal life. Anyone know what the definition of eternal life is in the book of John? It's really, really simple. It's super, super simple. Listen to what he says in John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. Here you go. This is the definition. This is a straight quote. Here it is. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, that's the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. That's eternal life. You know what eternal life is going to be? Knowing the word forever. You are tasting, if you have your earmuffs off, a little bit of eternal life this morning as you hear, not me, I'm really not worth hearing, but as you hear Jesus, the living word of God who speaks life to you in your need, in your distress, in your personal death, in your sorrow, in the things you don't know, in the unanticipated future, in the darkness of things yet to be revealed, in these areas, he speaks life to you if you're listening. This answers the question, what should we do about what God actually says? It's easier to accumulate information. It's easier to think about ideas. It's easier even to be theological about something than it is to actually address what God wants me to do, how God wants me to change, what he wants to do that's different in my life. And so I want to give you just a few practical questions on how we can address that here they are. Who is God? We used to have a little handout we gave to our kids when we would go to church. It was their own supplemental notes that we would send with them, and they got treats. I'm afraid we're not probably initiating a treat uh, thing here. Maybe we'd do better. I don't know. We can look at that. But uh, we'd give them treats if they did the right thing and filled out their notes. And this is one of the questions on it. Who is God? You know that in every passage of scripture that you hear preached here, you're going to get the answer to that question in one form or another. Who is God? Here's the next one. Who am I in God's sight? The more you know about God's holiness, the more it tells you about your unholiness. The more you know about God's love, the more you find out that he loves unlovely people and lavishes his grace upon them. Hey, that's just the beginning. What else do you know about God in this passage of scripture and who you are in God's sight? What stands out to me? That's probably one of the key things. You know that sometimes the things that are preached are not even the things that you hear the Holy Spirit say, say to you. You've experienced it, haven't you? Haven't you experienced that? The preacher didn't even think he was preaching about what you heard the Holy Spirit say, right? 
Yeah, I've had it happen. So you know what I would say? Jot that down. Because that was the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's much better than hearing some well-intentioned man who desires to speak the word of God to you hear from the word himself. What stands out to me, and here's one that's kind of tough, what does God want me to change? Every time you come, it's like, boy, they always are preaching for change. Always, always, always change something. Change something. Be, yeah. You know why? Because we aren't perfect yet. Right. Well, I'm not perfect. Are you guys okay? I think you're not either, are you? Okay, so, so when you come to church, expect that you're going to hear the word of God saying to you, this is what I want to do to change you. And guess what he's changing you into? The very image of the Son of God. Yeah, you are more like the word you hear. He speaks his word. You take in his word and become more like the word as you hear him speak. Many years ago, there was a pioneer missionary to India. Some of you know his name, Adoniram Judson, first American missionary, father of American missions. Went to India, lost a great deal there, including his beloved wife, Anne Hasseltine. Buried her under an acacia tree. Went into the jungle and really lost all hope. He sat there on the edge of the jungle, the tiger-infested jungle, and contemplated the meaning of death and the decomposition of human bodies. Doesn't sound like a great place for a missionary to be, does it? But he came out the other side walking with God and realizing that he needed what only God could do for him. And God turned things around, and later on, much later on in his life, when he came back as an old man to the United States, he preached a message and as he preached the message, his wife that he had married since Anne Hasseltine had died said they were really hoping to hear something special from a man who came from the Antipodes. Antipodes is the other side of the world. We don't use that word much, do we? But that's what they say in the old times. They were hoping to hear something really different, something, some exciting story, something that would rivet their attention. Maybe, she didn't say it, but maybe something entertaining, maybe some new information, maybe some special insight. They wanted to hear something from you that was new. This is what he said. I'm glad to have it to say that a man coming from the Antipodes had nothing better to tell them than the wondrous story of Jesus' dying love. That's it. That's the whole story. There's no other story to tell. There's nothing better that we could explain. We have one message. And the one message is all through the entire word of God from Genesis to Revelation, including Leviticus. That one message, a God who speaks. A God who does not let us live in an imaginary world where we can see signs of his power and understand things that he has done simply by our senses. But a real world, a real world where he has made those things, given you the ability to perceive them, to touch them, to see them, to smell them, to taste them. Yes, he's given you all of that, and then he has spoken his own word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, 
But in these last days, he has, he has spoken to us by his son, the word. I invite you to come on Sundays. But to come with your earmuffs off. To be prepared to actually hear what God wants to say through the living word who's proclaimed by fallible people. So that the power might be of God and not of us. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, you are so gracious to communicate to us, even though we're hard of hearing and sometimes don't even want to hear. But you speak, and you speak a better word. You speak the very word of forgiveness through Jesus. You speak the word of righteousness in him alone. You speak the word that is the only way to know the end of the trail. And we ask that you'd speak to us. That you'd help us to come anticipating hearing something about the treasure of eternal life, which is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent. Help us to come with anticipation. Help us to come not saying, oh, here comes another of those messages on Jude again. Help us to come ready to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us.